Thanks for listening to the CT Podcast, a ministry of Church Triumphant, another opportunity for you to be equipped and encouraged to win, disciple, and send. For further information, go to www.churchtea.org. Oh, boy. I heard a pastor say one time that when he ever he goes up to, to preach, he, he always looks for some dust wipe on his fingers so he can go like this and remember who he is. But you guys keep in a pretty clean, uh, pretty clean pulpit here, so I don't know if that's going to be possible. But that's my intent. I want to deliver this today with confidence, but with humility. So let's start out by talking about a problem we have in the church. The statistically, 70 roughly percent of young people in the church leave the faith before they graduate high school, excuse me, college. And, you know, Aaron mentioned businesses. If, if that was my, my business was, you know, 70% of my bows broke, I wouldn't be in business very long. You can, you can put the math together. So there's, there's a problem in the church, and, and that's one thing that really bugs me about it is it's in the church. It's in the church. And I think we need to kind of rethink um, what we're doing sometimes, and go back to the basics often. And I think we do get it backwards in the church. Um, I hear a ton of people talking about ministries, and church, and this organization, and that organization. There's a whole lot of focus on the church in general. And we think in the church, inside of it, we think that the church is supposed to build a strong family. But in, in, in all actuality, it's, it's, that's reversed. The strong family builds a strong church. It's, in, it's, it's reversed. We put all this effort and this energy on this, on this ministry. But if the ministry inside of it, if the church is broken, then all the people get done is ministering to the people inside the church. And the world doesn't get the help they need. <clears throat> and the church isn't responsible for your family. You are. Mother, father, you are. Teenager, you are. You're responsible. I want to talk today about discipleship and discipline. Another word I'll use for discipleship would be um, training or teaching. It's basically the same thing. So that's the two things we're going to focus on. But basically and specifically, how it affects the family. Okay, We're going to talk about those things really pointedly inside of the home. I'm going to start out with a quote this morning, maybe. <laughs> if not, I'll just say it. It's all good. Okay, so I'm going to read this. This is long. I'm going to go fast. Follow me. In God's eyes and in a small child's, a parent stands in the place of God himself. In the physical sense, parents are the child's creator, provider, lawgiver, teacher, and protector, and sometimes even savior. A child's response to this relationship will greatly determine his later response to larger relationships in society and is absolutely certain to affect his relationship with God. Thus, since parents represent God, it becomes our obligation to live lives worthy of that honor. Ultimately, the responsibility for keeping this commandment falls on the child. But it begins with the parents through child training and example. If parents neither provide the correct example nor teach the correct way, they can hardly expect their children to honor them. That's a quote by John W. Rydenball. Nothing to it, right? <laughs> That's easy. We'll do that right before we take a nap. <laughs> you know, my goal today is to convey that though this is a daunting task, when you look at it, you're like, whoo. Don't worry about setting the bar too high. Though it's daunting, through the grace of God, it is possible. Okay, definition of dis discipline. To correct, to chastise, to punish. The, the important thing here is discipline is related to punishment. The discipline, definition of disciple is to teach, to train, and to bring up. To disciple means a follower or a student of a teacher, leader, or philosopher. Discipleship is training. These two things are very different, and I think often they're smashed right up together. 
and we don't differentiate the two, and we don't really understand how they apply to our children in our home. So I'm gonna, that's the first thing I'm going to dive into, and we're going to talk about training first. Reason being is because training precedes discipline. Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. To summarize this in a one-liner, like training precedes discipline, I'd say it like this. The more that you train, the less you have to discipline. And that's a blessing for the home because discipline is like, you know, it's the worst part of the job. It's like when you have a business, the worst part of the job is having to fire somebody, having to let somebody go. That's discipline. It's not the fun part. So it's very important to understand that the more that you train, the less you have to discipline. And I'll apply this to our home. Um, I'll just, just pretend that Justice is four months old, and he just started reaching for the glass of water on the table when we're holding him. The first thing that we do, the first way that we start to train our children is we just, just tap them on the hand and say no. And, and if you think about it, the first response most parents have, and we fight this with every children, is to just move everything out of the way. Oh, he reached for that. Let's set it up here. It, you know, it, we, we have this idea that we're going to uh, child-proof our home, but we really need to home-proof the child, right? You just, you're, you're teaching and you're training your children, and it starts very young. I mean, start, start early and often, <laughs> and the success will be better and sooner. So it progresses, though, to say seven months old, and at this point, you know, we typically start flicking them on the hand. And it's amazing how, you know, you flick them on the hand, and they just kind of look at you like, what would you do that for? And it's not, at this point, it's, it's not that you are disciplining them with that. What you're doing is you're utilizing where they're at in life and what they can, how they can reason and respond to a stimulus, you know, a flick on the hand, no, to get them to understand that means no. And here's why this is important. Because you can never discipline a child if they don't know what they've done wrong. So when we start out in our home, we start out very early. We start out very young. And we want our goal is to train them ultimately in the ways of the Lord. But we want to train them to, to learn the words no. We want to train them to know what come means. We want to train them to know what be quiet means, right? All these things. And we do that through training, not through discipline. You accomplish all those lessons, and it's, it's, a much, it's a much better way, too. It's, it can actually be fun, especially as they get older. You can incorporate this in it to, it to where it's enjoyable. It's not miserable. Of course, you do reach that point where they look at you after you flick them on the hand, and they just kind of do it again. And that's where you transition over into discipline. <clears throat> now, again, I already said this, but you should never discipline a child unless they know they've done wrong. Also, at this age, you should never discipline. To, okay, I'll, I'll start over. In order for discipline to be associated with disobedience the child, in the child's mind, it has to be done very quickly. So if you have, you know, a year and a half old running around and they know better than to get into something and they get into it, you can't wait five minutes and then say, oh, I'll spank them later. You have to be very intentional because they're not going to apply that discipline in their life to what they did wrong. To, and them at that age, in order to apply it, it has to be done very quickly, which is oftentimes a selfless act on the parent's part. You have to stop doing what you're doing and go handle the problem instead of putting it off. Um, what's the benefit to this? You know, first off, let me just say this. You never want to Okay, begin with the end in mind. You never want to train your child in a way that's contrary to the world they're going to grow up in. For instance, if there's something on the table and you're constantly picking up and setting it somewhere else, what happens when children grow up? The older we get, the more capable we are of getting into mischief or trouble. A, a one-year-old can't get into as much trouble as a four-year-old. And, and by removing the ability for a child to get into trouble, instead of training them not to, you're preparing them in life that you're taking away their option to willfully not transgress, right? You're forcing them to obey by removing it, whereas if you leave it there and then when they disobey, you know, you correct them on it or you train them on it, depending on which, where you're at in it, you're actually training them that they have the self-will inside of them to choose right instead of just 
setting them up for a world that they're going to get launched into where everything's at their fingertips on a, on a phone. Literally, everything's at your fingertips, and it takes an incredible amount of self-control and self-discipline to hold the line. So when, whenever we're training, we need to keep in mind, begin with the end in mind. What's the end? That your children serve the Lord with all their heart, right? So begin with that end and understand that the little things you do back here at six months old actually play out over here at 18. Okay, so the terrible twos, you know, this is a... If, the benefits to this, folks, are simply this. And I'm going to say this boldly, so don't, don't, I don't want to come across wrong. But terrible twos are a myth that the world has invented. Straight up. I, I have not had, we've, we've not experienced terrible twos in our, in our home at all. Like, if you think about it, why are the terrible twos so bad? Okay, because a child's um, capabilities and the way they're growing at about two years old, their brain's exploded. The world is new. Everything they see, they want to get into, right? And if you haven't taught them, if you haven't done all this work up front, if you haven't taught them in the beginning to where they get to this, to have some foundation to choose rightly, it's going to seem like you have a terrible two on your hands. So, yeah, they do exist, but they don't have to. Okay, the conventional wisdom that when kids hit a certain age, they just go bonkers. No, that's not godly. That's not what the Word says. If, if we train them up in the discipline of the Lord, they don't, we don't have to put up with that. Will there be hard times? Absolutely. You're going to have to hold the line. It's like one of my sons is like that dinosaur in Jurassic Park. He just keeps testing the fence constantly, you know, reaching up and seeing if the fence is on. And, and you go through that. But you get to a time if you put all this work in up front. If you guys have seen Dave Ramsey, but if you put the work in up front, you pay now, you can take a little bit of a breath later. I have three children. I can't hardly remember the oldest three. I can't hardly remember the last time I had to spank them. It's a blessing. And, it, and then they help out. And they come along, and they're helping out with the younger ones. <clears throat> Training about lying. Let's talk about that real quick. I'm just going to give you a few examples and get through this. So at about three years old, Titus told his first lie. Do you remember that, Titus? Do you remember that? Kind of. See, here's the thing, though. He didn't know he lied to me. Now, let me ask you a question. Should I have disciplined right there, him right there when he told me that first lie? Can't do it. He didn't even know what he did wrong. Like, he, he answered a question to me, and it was a lie, but he didn't know it. He didn't comprehend it. He just kind of looked at me, and so I got down. You know, the best way to train your children is to get down their level. So I got down and said, okay, I'm going to explain this to you. And I spent like two minutes, honestly, wasting my breath because he was glazed over. He's like, do you understand that you, you said this and you did this, and that's not true? Yeah, you know, he, he just wasn't getting it. So I'm thinking to myself, how, how am I going to get this across? I want him to learn early. I don't want to deal with this. I want this to drag out until he's 10 years old. And so I walked out the door. He walked out behind me, and the door slammed. And I turned around, and I said, Titus, did you just walk out the door? And he looked at me and went, no. I said, are you sure? And I walked over, and I opened the door up, and it slammed. I said, didn't you just come out right before it slammed? He's like, yeah. I said, so you did walk out the door? He said, yeah. And I repeated that over and over and over again. Whenever, you know, just whenever you think about it, whenever the opportunity arises. And, you know, he doesn't lie to him anymore. He's had the opportunity to get out of, out of a switching uh, several times over the last month, and he didn't lie. And, he, you know, it, I, I probably have, have spanked him a couple times to teach him, you know, not to lie. But I spent the bulk of that effort. It would have been way greater if I never would have taken the time to get down there on his level. You know, I, I want my children to succeed. And if I put the work in up front, I can cut down on some of the, the harshness as a parent, if you will, the stuff that we got to hold the line that's not fun. And that's the goal. I want a relationship with him, and I want to I build that with him the best, most efficient way possible. All right, let's move on real quick to uh, a really important thing to teach your children is to guard their eyes. You know, how we, how we do this is I, I put my kids at attention. You know, we, we, a few, first few things, no, come, stand at attention. If you can get control, I don't, has anybody in here ever trained animals, a dog, for instance? You, you have to get control over that animal, not from a fear perspective, from a love perspective, Right? You, but you have to get control over your child for those few things. And then once you have that, 
I mean, they can be going bonkers, and you can say, Titus, come here. Sander, come here. And they come and stand because they've, they've already learned that lesson. And then the other lessons you're trying to teach them in that moment, you can apply easier because they're not crazy, okay? So guard your eyes. We put our kids at attention, and we put a TV, a movie on thing over here that they really want to watch, and we make them stand at attention. And then we reward them or tease them or tickle them or whatever, however it plays out, whoever looks first. And then as they got better at it, we would quarter them toward it, you know, the screen's like right here and they're looking right here. And you could, boy, it was funny watching Xander, man. He'd be standing there like twitching, holding his eyes from going over that screen. It was actually a really funny training experience watching them do that. The fruit of that, you know, we were on a plane coming back from Alaska. We spent five weeks in Alaska last year and we were coming back and we get on the plane and there's this movie, you know, a lot of planes, they, they're, they're play things right on the, on the back of the seats and you, you know, can't really control it. Well, we didn't know we could. We couldn't find the button to shut it off. Smart parents, we are. Anyway, you know, a minute into sitting there, Lee and I are like, how do you shut this thing off when we're looking? And I look over and I tap Lee on the arm and said, it doesn't even matter. We don't need to find the off switch. Look. And she looks over and Ariana and Xander had taken these things out of the seats, like magazine pieces or whatever, and they had stuffed them in with the corners and come down in front of the the um, preview that they were showing. It was probably like a PG-14 preview that was pretty intense, you know, and, and they just naturally guarded their eyes. I didn't say one word to them. We, we need to teach our children and expect them to find success in life, to walk the line, to hold the line, to be good examples for Christ. Loading up, okay? So <laughs> we had a, some problems early on um, with our kids getting in the car. Well, that can be stressful. It's usually when you're on your way to church, straight up. It usually is. And, and they would, you know, we'd go out of the car and nobody's buckled in and they're arguing over whose seat's whose. And so we made a drill out of it. I, I literally said, all right, we're going to time you guys. How fast can you get in the car? And, and, and again, what's this building? It's building unity. There's a common goal. We're no longer in competition. We want to see as a team how fast we can load up. And we, we drilled them on that several times and they got it down to where it was, you know, like 45 seconds or 30 seconds. And Ariana would be running out there and Justice would be bouncing on her hip, <laughs> and they would load up. And, of course, it's like, wow, you guys did it that fast. Training is meant to be a synergistic thing. It's exciting. It's fun. It should be just as soon as you can apply it that way, you should apply it that way with your children. So there's just a few examples of what we do in our home. Get creative. Do it better than we do. I know it's possible because my wife and I, aren't, we're not super creative. We're really good at holding the line, but... When it comes to spreading outside of the box and being creative, it's not our strength. So I'm sure you guys can come up with more and better. So for, for the parent, training is a selfless act, and it takes more intentionality than discipline does. Here's why. Because training's proactive. It's proactive. Whereas discipline on the opposite end of the spectrum, on the other side, is reactive. Okay. Training's proactive, discipline's reactive. If you want obedient children, plan on doing the work up front. The longer you, want, the longer you wait to train and the less of it you do, the harder it's going to be on you and the less peace you'll have in your home. Okay. We were flying home from Europe. It's an eight and a half hour flight. There's two ladies get on. We've probably been on the plane 15 minutes and gotten settled. These two ladies get on, and they were found out they were from California. They were sisters, and they sit down next to Leah. And before we even take off, they're like, man, what do you guys do with your kids? And so Leah, you know, it was a great opportunity for Leah to share. Well, you know, we train them, and, you know, I don't know what all she said, but she pointed, she pointed to God, the biblical example. You know, how, how, does, how, does, how does God train us? How does God discipline us? And it was an awesome witnessing opportunity, and she's like, I just can't believe it. You know, she, I think she had two children, and she's like, I don't know what you guys do, but it's amazing. You know, the, the truth is, if she knew everything we did, she probably wouldn't like it. Let's be honest. But when she's sitting there outside of that, looking at the results, she's amazed. And eight, eight and a half hours later, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, oh, boy, we just got set up. We're about to get humbled. One of them's going to flip out. <laughs> Praise God. They didn't. <laughs> we held the testimony. And, um, you know, we, we got there. And, I mean, she was shaking her head when she left the plane. She literally came over and said, 
I don't know what you're doing, but keep on doing it. If she knew what she was saying, yeah, I don't know how liberal-minded she is. Maybe I shouldn't assume. It's dangerous to assume. But if she knew what she was saying, she probably wouldn't. And even, even right now, my wife is like, oh, my goodness, is Aaron going to put this online for everybody to listen to? Because <laughs> this isn't real, real popular. Some of this stuff isn't real popular to talk about, right? Uh, so... <laughs> Let me answer this question. Does this apply to me? Suppose you guys don't have kids in the home anymore. Your, your children are grown and gone. It still does. still applies to you. Because training is something we never outgrow. Let me say it like this. Discipleship or training is growing in the likeness of Christ in every respect, not just in our natural area of strength. It's, it's a constant thing. I don't care if your grandma and grandpa or I don't care if you're a teenager and you don't have children yet, this applies to you, hands down. Every, if you want to do your best in life, you know, you know what separates, let me say it this way, you know what separates us from animals? We're self-aware. We're self-aware. We can look at something we've done and say, huh, that wasn't the best way. I'm going to correct and adjust and do it this way. Train yourself. It's, Having done all to stand, stand there for. It's something that's jumping in my mind. Having done all to stand, stand there for. Okay, let's move on. We're going to go to discipline next. Kind of already touched it. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And then Proverbs 13, 24. He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. That's probably one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. Because if I say to you, spare the rod, you're going to say, spoil the child. It doesn't say spoil the child. It says hate the son. Now, in all fairness, I don't want to be too harsh. Hate probably means if you, I didn't do this, but I've, I've looked into the definition of hate before in different verses, but it probably means love less. It doesn't mean hope your children go to hell, right? That's, it's not talking about that kind of hate, okay? The Bible doesn't contradict itself, but it, it means love less. That's what it means, you spare the rod, you love your children less. <clears throat> now, again, I said this is not a popular topic, but it needs to be addressed. This is important. We've got some problems in our church, okay? And it, it starts right down here. That's where they start. And you know what? They're the future. They're the future. Two different problems with discipline. We have no discipline, the absence of it, and discipline way too harshly. Those are the two different extremes. Often we see, we see this. A mother or a father doesn't spank their child because the parent's desire for love is greater than the love that they have for their child. I'm going to say it again because it's heavy. A mother or father doesn't spank their child because the parent's desire for love is greater than the love they have for their child. What did Proverbs say? Spare the rod, hate the son. See, they, somebody was hurt as a child. It was done wrong in the home. It wasn't done godly. And they don't want to repeat that. And so in their mind, they don't want their child to look at them like they look at theirs, their, their parent. They don't want their child to do that with them. So they're like, that didn't work in my home. I'm not going to do that. That was just, it wasn't healthy. But in all absence, what's happened is their love or their desire, their need for love, to be loved and to feel loved because they didn't get that from their parents, What's happening is they're putting that, they're superseding that over the word of God in their life and their family. And you see that aspect of it. You know, that's, that's the side of no discipline. And what happens to children that come out of homes where it's either none or too extreme, they, they grow up to believe that God's either a pushover or that he can't wait to beat the heck out of you, right? He's just waiting for you to screw up. And that's what these two extremes do. This is how, this is why it's so important. This is why... There's so much responsibility inside the home with fathers and mothers. See, the children, about the only thing they don't have free will in life in is being born, right? <laughs> That's about it. Well, they get to choose a lot of things after they're born, but they're innocent. When they're born into our home, they're innocent. And it's our responsibility as godly fathers and mothers to train them in the fear, admonition, discipline of the Lord. Okay. So let's, let's, get, let's get over to this and, and just jump into discipline quickly. We've got to move on. 
Parents stand in the place of God as the lawgiver. If you don't discipline your children, this is what you're teaching them. There's no consequence to sin. That's exactly what you're teaching them, like it or not. If there's no, if, if they know right from wrong, in their conscience they do, hands down, whether it's in your house or not, they know it's, not, it's the wrong, certain things are wrong. But if they know that, and then they see no upholding of that law, then in their mind, you're standing in the place of God. There's no consequence to sin. But in reality, that's not true. Sin destroys, breaks homes, causes problems, creates an amazing amount of work that God wants to spare his children from. Well, that's why the law was given, to bring us to repentance, right? Not for condemnation, for repentance so we'll get right with him and do it right. The purpose of discipline is to show the child that law is just and that they're not above it. And to bring the child back into fellowship. It's that simple. That's discipline. So if, if you've seen discipline done one extreme or the other, it, if it didn't meet this criteria, to show the child that law is just, you're not above it, and now I want to bring you back into fellowship. If that's your example of discipline didn't fit, fit that criteria, it was most likely done wrong. And you need to rework your definition into where it, it matches that and how you apply it in your home. I've got just, you think about this for me. Two words, school shootings. How can people, you know, 17 years old, you know, just waste people, wipe them out? And there's like, in their mind, there's no consequence. Now, I haven't read psychological profiles on the children, but I would be, I would, I would put my money on. They don't have a, they don't have a, an accurate consequence of wrong. They don't, there's no, there's nothing in their brain that is solid to, if I do this, I'll get this. Or if I do this, it's going to destroy. Right? It's important. You know, the conventional wisdom says that discipline bruises self-esteem or discourages the children. Colossians says, provoke not your children to anger lest they become discouraged. The Bible does address this. But here's the thing. Parents often yell because they don't want the discipline. And this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. Come here. Come here. I said come here. Get over here right now. Right? <laughs> Maybe a little too dramatic for me, but that's what it looks like. I've seen it. They just go to Walmart, right? <laughs> I mean, I've seen it. What just happened there to the child? Was that provoking? See, we, we, need, we have a messed up idea of, of how we provoke children, okay? Children are provoked with inconsistency. Amen? That's, that's how you provoke. In fact, I, I bet all of you who can say, I remember this time in my life when I was provoked, I bet it had something to do with inconsistency. It probably had something to do with a person being very inconsistent in your, in your life and not doing what they should do. So the, the fastest way to provoke your children is to be inconsistent with them. When they know the just requirement of the law is, I lied to my brother, or I lied to my mom, or I hit my brother, or whatever, the just requirement of the law is you get two switchings, and you don't give them those two switchings, and instead you scream their head off. Guess what? What did you just teach them when you did that? First off, you taught them that the law can be manipulated based on emotion. Ouch. The law can't be manipulated based on emotion. God's our leader, Right? He shows the way. He doesn't manipulate his own law. In fact, I think it says he cannot sin. It would be contrary to his design, his will. We, we can't take our children and expect to maintain great relationships with them because that's the goal. Good's not enough. We want great. Okay? We can't take our children and expect to, to maintain these great solid relationships with them when we constantly undermine our own efforts. Okay? Now, I know this is a heavy message. I know it is. I tried desperately to figure out how I could lighten this up. <laughs> I did. And I even, I even worked in a, a, a joke or two, but I'm like, I can't even get to the joke. I've got to get through this stuff. It's important, right? <laughs> so, provoke not your children to anger, lest they become discouraged. You know, one of the biggest jobs of a parent, 
this is one of the biggest jobs is to teach your children to deal with emotion. Let's go back to the school shooting problem. Did that, did that child know that just because he felt angry, he couldn't go out and wipe somebody out? Was he taught that? Was he taught that your feelings are real and they're there? And you, my son, don't have to do what you feel. You don't have to say what's in your head. What's it say? Full speaketh all that's in his mind. We have to teach our children to deal with emotion. And to do that, we're the example. Right? Get in the bathroom! That's, uh, what are you spanking them for? Yelling? Ugh. This is a big deal, guys, okay? And some of you, some of you young people should be saying amen, like left and right. <laughs> Holding the line. Oh, man. The best way that we teach our children how to deal with emotion by, is by controlling ours. I'm not saying be a zombie. We can express emotion. But we cannot step out of the bounds of how the Bible, you know, says to, says to teach. A soft answer turns away wrath. If we're, if we're disciplining our children angrily screaming at them or not disciplining our children and I don't want to spank them so I'd rather scream at them a soft answer turns away wrath we've just provoked them to anger the rod doesn't provoke them to anger the just requirement of the law being fulfilled if if my daughter disobeys me and she knows she's not supposed to and she gets spanked for it that's not provoking that's not provoking she knew she was wrong she knew she earned it now if she got spanked and had no idea if she got spanked for what she's going to do tomorrow, harshly. <clears throat> How many adults struggle with can God really forgive me? I hear that problem a lot. Remember, the pers- purpose of discipline is to teach Children, the law is just. They're not above it. And the just requirement of the law has been paid. Come back to fellowship. That's the purpose. Okay, I'm going to talk about something else that probably is going to be considered meddling, and I'll go fast. In our home, we don't like grounding. Okay? If you do, uh, not throwing condemnation on you, we just, we don't. And I'm going to give you a few quick reasons why. First one is it's counterproductive, straight up. Here's how it works. You got in trouble, you're grounded for two weeks. What did you just teach that child? You taught them, this is, this is the effect. They get to live in that failure for two weeks, and then it's over. No, that's not the biblical model of discipline. It needs to be over quickly, and we need to restore the relationship. Do whatever you do from here on out. Don't do what I say you should do. Look at the consequences of your discipline inside of your home, and you be the judge. But think about the consequences because they're there. To tell a child you're going to live in that defeat for two weeks before you're clear, before your mind, your conscience can be clear, is, it really is counterproductive for what we're hoping our children do in their lives. Also, I'm trying to decide how much of this I should say. <laughs> let's, let's, let's say, <clears throat> man, give me wisdom, Lord. Okay, so let me give you a story. When I was six years old, <clears throat> my mother liked to yell. And my mother's here today, and I've asked her if I could say this. And you know, before I say it, you know what her response was? You know, if it's going to cause people to understand where they've gone wrong and how they can do better, if it's going to give people a leg up, then throw me under the bus. That's what she said. When I was six years old, I went out and I cut a switch. And I came back in and I gave it to my mom. And I said, Mom, I wish so bad you would just switch me and it could be over instead of yelling at me. That's what I said to her. Dead serious. It happened. She looked at me 
kind of befuddled, and I'm not going to lie to you and say that everything changed, okay? But we need discipline in our lives as children, but it has to be godly. It has to be done knowing that we're representing God Almighty as we do it. And my mom and I's relationship's good. I didn't, I didn't throw that out there to, you know, push down on her or make her look bad. In fact, I'll say it this way. My mother probably did, with her mouth in the home, about 20 times better than her mother. Okay? So she didn't go backwards. So don't take it that way. And, and I continued on that foundation. And my wife and I looked at each other and said, you know what? Before we were married, we had this conversation. We're done with yelling. You dealt with it. I dealt with it. Not in our home. I'm never going to yell at you. You're never going to yell at me. And we're never sure as heck going to yell at our children. We can't do that. We don't want to break that bond. I know what it felt like. She knew what it felt like. And so training, right? Continually stepping up. That's what I'm talking about today. Continually measuring up to the call. One other reason that we don't ground, just real quick. Grounding's harder on us, straight up, okay? Let me just say it like this. I'll just be blunt about it. Suppose Leah and I want to go on a date night, and we just grounded our child for two weeks. You're grounded. What are we going to do a week from now when we want to go on our date night? Are we going to compromise? Are we going to teach our children that, okay, we want to go on our date night, so even though the just requirement of the law is you have to be grounded for two weeks, our desire comes above what the law requires. It's, it's, uh, it's, not, it's just easier to have it over with. Okay, I'm going to move on. Disciplining too harshly. <clears throat> always, almost always associated with the tongue also. I've hit the tongue hard. I've hit how we speak to our children a lot. Disciplining too harshly is also almost always associated with the speaking problem that we have. Okay? It's also the same thing of inconsistency. Very often, discipline too harshly is done inconsistently. I would like to say it like this, and this is extreme, but it's true. You could be a little on one extreme and the other, a little too soft on discipline or a little too extreme. But if you were to do it consistently, your children would be better off than to just go back and forth at will, wherever you feel like it, whenever you feel like it, however your emotions are. A father that's heavy-handed and requires, you're going to call me sir, and holds that line the entire time and maintains and speaks rightly to his children is still much better off than one that just flops around. And if he came home and had a really bad day at work, then he spanked his kids. And if he had a really good day, they did the same thing wrong, and he just hugs them. Okay? Nothing can take the place in the home for consistency because you're the child's anchor. You're their rock. They look at you like God. Wow, my parents. And if you're all over the board, you're simply just teaching them you really can't control your emotions. The law is meant to be bent to however you feel. Okay? So discipline too harshly is just as big of a problem as not having discipline either. You see these things where the parents so angry they've got their kid picked up in the air and they're smacking him with their hand. Yeah, you ain't done nothing but just harm your relationship. This is not the example of discipline. And some of you, I know for a fact you had that. You had it wrongly, harshly. It's true. But you don't have to repeat that. You can take a different direction. I, was, I bought a business off this guy named Bob, okay? And he came over to the shop, and he was training us for three weeks. And this is what it looked like. He's standing here at this table, and we have some bow stuff spread out on it. And Titus decided to act up. Poor Titus. Throw him under the bus a lot. He's sleeping. It's good. Okay. So he, he decides to act up. And I'm like, oh, man, not right now. I do not want to hold the line right now. I'm trying to learn something. I've got people watching. I'm going to hold the line. So I go over to him, and the first thing I did, do you know you did wrong? Yeah. Okay, well, you know what I need to do? You know what's coming? Yep, I'm going to switch you two times. You, you hit your brother, and you know better. We've been over this. So now I'm going to switch you. Took him to the bathroom, switched him twice. Let me just say here real quick, whatever you use to discipline your children, 
Let it be light, thin, not heavy. You don't want to damage your children. The point is not so you can take out your rage on them. Okay? Don't hit them with a heavy board. No. No, it's just let it sting, let it get the point across, and let it be done with no permanent consequences. Don't smack them with your hand. Don't whatever's, whatever's in your way, you grab and take into the bathroom with you. No, 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 no. Deliberately. Okay? So I switch him. He cries. Typically, especially with Titus, we usually hug. And I look him in the eyes. I say, all right, it's over now, son. You ready to get back to it? Yep. All right. You know, if you do it again, if you do it again, I'm going to have to spank you again. I'm going to hold the line. You know that, right? Yep. Okay. All right. I'm expecting that you can obey. I know you're going to learn this lesson, son. All right. And it's over and it's done. Conscious cleared. We have to rightly divide the word of truth here. We've got to apply discipline inside of our home correctly. Not too extreme. Not too light. We have to hold it just right. And through the grace of God, we can, which is where I'm headed next. Let me say this. To discipline properly, you must use discipline in your own life. If you're going dis- to be a, a parent who disciplines properly, it will take the last fruit of the Spirit in your life, which, interestingly enough, I find that the last fruit of the Spirit affects all the rest. I don't know why it's last, but it, it's there and it affects all the rest. <clears throat> If you would be a faithful disciple, you must overcome the desire of your own way. Once again, how does this apply to me? Well, if you'd be a faithful disciple, you've got to overcome your own way. That's discipline in your life. It may not look the same as when you're in the home. It's not meant to. You're supposed to grow up. But if you would be a faithful disciple, you must discipline yourself to overcome your own way. Grandparents, to you. So I read a book a while back, and it, this isn't in my notes, so I'm going to say it anyway. It addressed a certain thing inside of older people to where they feel like they're washed up. They're done. And it left a hole in my heart because it was like this void of they don't see themselves as useful. That isn't where God wants you to live. Listen, we need your wisdom in our lives. I, we need you. We need you. This applies to you because we need you. What you've done right, what you've done wrong, we need to know about it. You're like, well, maybe somebody's thinking, my kids won't listen to me. They may, you may think you need me, but they don't. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Somebody needs you. You're not done yet. If you're breathing in this room, you have a purpose don't, I don't know where you're at in life, but often older folks struggle with depression. It beats them down. And can I say this as kindly as I, as I, as humbly and as kindly as I can? The state of depression is okay if it's for a moment, but to live in that, oh, you're, oh, you're just, your family needs you. You can't stay there. And here's why: because depression is all self. When you're in depression, you're focused on me and my problems, how horrible it is. It's just this brutal situation. All you're consumed with is how horrible a life is. Oh, how ugly I am. Whatever it is, I don't care what it is. Depression is a state of selfishness if you're going to stay there. And you can't stay there because your family needs you. Grandma, grandpa, you have a purpose in life. Your family needs you. They need you to hold the line. They still need your encouragement. You're not done yet. Wow, that was free. Let's talk, we're going to totally change gears here, and we're going to talk. This, <laughs> this is the point in the sermon where most preachers undo themselves, okay? And this is what it looks like. I've just given you 50 reasons not to yell at your kids, but you're only human. Okay? They don't say it quite that directly, but that's what, how it comes out, okay? I've just told you, you need to be holding the line here, X, Y, and Z specifically, but nobody's perfect. When we say these things, these big general overarching things, they're, they're confusing to me. Like, it bugs me. And let me say it like this. Because if you come up to me and you say, well, yeah, but nobody's perfect, well, what does that mean exactly? Because does that mean that I didn't hang the blind for my wife, or does that mean I just spent two hours in pornography? 
Because both fall under this same class, right? Both of them register under the title, I'm not perfect. So I'm going to be very careful not to do that. And I also want to be very careful not to be condescending. But we can't, we can't throw this title out there after we've laid down the line of nobody's perfect and expect it to stick. Because essentially what we just did was we just gave an excuse or a reason for them to not hear it or not obey or whatever it is. We basically, what we do is we say, here, hold the line, but you're unable. Right? You can't. You really can't. We're all human. We all send everything in thought, word, and deed. It's, it's, you know, just do your best. Let me ask you a question. I want you to be real. And do you expect your children to be a disciple of God? Seriously? Do you really expect it? Do you hope? I think our pastor defined hope last Sunday was earnest expectation, something like that. I'm getting it right. Do you, what, what do you expect of your kids? Teenagers, have, have you been taught? I don't know how many of them are in here, but have you been taught? Have you ever heard this idea? Well, when you hit your teenage years, you're, you're going to rebel. And kids just do. I've, man, I've, I've heard, I ain't throwing pastors on the bus this morning, but I've heard a lot of pastors say that. And it always rubs me the wrong way. Like, no, 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 no. That's not the plan. That's not the design. That's not what I'm shooting for, friend. Uh-uh. I don't want that. Will it happen? It could, but I'm not going to expect that. And I'm going to do everything in my power for that not to happen. You can believe that. If it does, it may, but that should not be the norm. 70% of our children should not be walking away from the faith. We want this thing to be swinging in the other way in our favor. But instead, 70% of the children that come out of the church go the other direction. The work gets greater and greater instead of winning them over and the work getting smaller and smaller, right? We... The church, oh my goodness, the burden on my heart. We've got to get this thing fixed, okay? What I'm trying to do this morning is I'm trying to get down to some of the roots of the problem, the ones that start right down here in the beginning. And one of these things is this idea that we're all human. You see it in our movies. They take the main role model, the main hero, and then they have him compromised subtly. They do it all the time. They're, they're instilling into our mindsets that we're all, we're all just failures. We're all just human. We fail. That's, that's our nature. That's the concept. I know I'm hitting this hard, but that's, that's what we're taught to believe. I say it's possible to have all my children serve the Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping. I'm, I'm expecting with confident desire. Will they? I don't know. That's in the future. But I'm expecting they will, and I'm going to do my best to make sure it happens. I know, I, I, know, I know I'm extreme. I know this is extreme. But let me tell you something. If you want to retire by 35, you've got to be extreme. Straight up. You cannot do what most people do and retire by 35. That's just a fact. If your plan is to retire when you're 62, which, quite frankly, if you're my age, you better extend it out a few years or whatever the age is now. But if that's your plan, that's probably where you'll get. That's, that's normal. And that's not bad. That's fine. But if you're going to expect something extreme... Like, to swing this pendulum the other direction, and let's, let's have 70% staying in the faith. I'm okay with cranking it up to 100, quite frankly. Like, we're going to have to get a little more extreme. We might even have to get our bows out and slaughter some of these sacred cows of, oh, this is, a, this is something I was taught, and I've known my entire life. And, and we do sin every day in thought, word, and deed. I mean, for crying out loud, we have a sin nature. I, I, I know that's true. We have, I've heard every pastor in the world say that. We have a sin nature. Amen. Okay? So, I am extreme. I'm not going to say I'm not. And, and it, let me balance myself out here. I, don't, I know I'm not perfect. You know, I talked about perfect. I know that ain't the case. I, I was working in the pool barn, and Leah came down, and she said, uh, where's Justice? And I was like, kind of sheepishly, uh, I don't know. <laughs> you know where we found him? And Titus is like, he's, uh, I seen him over on the front porch at Don's house. Oh, great. So we go down there, and he's curled up on the swing of sleep. I lost my two-year-old son while I was listening to a book about how to be a better father. That's <laughs> serious. That was about two weeks ago. Okay? That's not cool. That's not how you earn the Father of the Month award. So, you know, 
I'm not, I'm not blind to the fact that I'm not perfect and that we're not perfect as human beings. But when we say these things, you know, does that mean I can't shoot a bullseye every single time perfectly? No, I can't. So I'm not perfect. Does that mean I look in the mirror and I know I don't look perfect? But see, let me say it like this. Being able to do a better job and sin are two very different things. We're created to train ourselves we look at something we've done and say, hey, I could have done that better. I could have handled that better. I could have spoke to her more kindly. And we constantly correct and self-adjust according to God's word and the grace that he gives us in our hearts. That's, that's what I'm talking about. And to blend these two things of not being perfect and out-and-out out sin, like, you know, you name it. You know, we can name off some sins here that shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Just go down the list. Those two things don't blend together. They're totally different perspectives. None of us are perfect. I know that, hands down. I just apologized to my, my daughter the other day, you know, about a month ago. Do math, we do math. I, do, I help her with, her with her school. I had to say, I'm sorry. I was getting condescending there. I'm going to do better. I'm going to do better. And, you know, one, one way that let – me, let me challenge you real quick before I finish this out. If you want your kids – let's just say, for, for instance, you have misused the tongue in your home. You screamed and yelled at your kids or your spouse or whoever it is. When you go to them to apologize this time, you better put yourself under the law instead of above it. What do you mean by that? I mean, take the bar of soap out and lay it on the table and say, the next time I talk wrong to you, I'm going to wash my own mouth out. And you can watch. You want, you want respect from your kids? That's how you're going to earn it. They'll know then that you're dead serious. Your relationship with them means more than their pride. Lay yourself on the line. <clears throat> All right, let me finish this thing out. So I'm definitely not perfect. <laughs> but you can ask my wife, is he perfect? She's going to say no. You can also ask her if I've ever yelled at her, and she's going to give you the same answer. You can ask her if I've ever committed adultery on her, and she's going to give you the same answer. You can ask her, and you fill in the blank, and she's going to give you the same answer. So what do you, what do you, what's your point here? My point is serving God justly is possible, hands down. There is no excuse. There is no excuse. Can we always get better? Absolutely. Can we walk the line through the grace of God? Absolutely. Absolutely. Hands down. We can do it. On our own? Heavens no. With God? Absolutely. And we're all the church, right? I mean, most of you probably believe, probably are saved, right? Uh, okay, so. <clears throat> and another thought along that line I bet Jesus could have done better. Sounds extreme, but it's true. You think Jesus could have done better? I think we hold the bar pretty high on ourselves sometimes. I, I bet you anything if he would have went up to Mary and Joseph and said, I really feel pulled to go and stay in the temple and have a conversation instead of going with you on the caravan. That's what I need to do. That's what God's called me to do. That probably would have been better than him just wandering off and them being all stressed out about we lost our 12-year-old son. I think he could have done better. But I... Everybody in here agrees he's never sinned, amen? He was perfect, right? <clears throat> even God himself, I mean, let's take it even a step further. He repented. He looked, he looked at the course of action he had set his way towards, and he's like, you know, Moses, you might have a point. He changed his mind, right? It's not, it's not wrong to do that. It's not wrong for me to have... A whole bunch of stuff happened in my life at one time. Get stressed out and say, oh, this is so frustrating. And then look at my wife and say, I'm sorry. I apologize. I need to get it back together here. I lost sight of perspective. Okay? That's what we're about. That's what we're supposed to do. Amen. That's, I mean, that's how we grow. I don't want to raise our children. I don't want any of you the expectation that they're going to leave the faith. And let me make this point this way. The church thinks that it magnifies the grace of God to believe that we sin every day in thought, word, and deed. Straight up. That's what they think. When, you, when somebody is talking about grace, often you hear it said in this state, in the light, that if we sin constantly, but God is so gracious that he accepts us anyway, they believe that it magnifies his grace. It makes God, it puts him on the throne. He's so holy. He's so just but he still forgives us. That's the context that this said in it. It's true in a way, but that's, doesn't it magnify the grace of God more to believe that 
he gives us the ability to live holy? A lot more. Does it not magnify the grace of God more to believe that he gave me the grace to walk in righteousness? Hallelujah. I can lead my family, and I don't need to commit adultery on them, honor. Amen? I can hold that line until I die. You fill in the blank. I'm not trying to pick out one thing. Okay, that's an extreme thing because that's, I'm trying to be extreme. I want you guys to get, I want you to get your attention. Make, make it easier. I don't ever have to yell at my wife or my children. And I'll, and I'll testify, praise God, to this day. I was, I was confident and determined beyond reasonable, probably, when Leah and I said, I'm not going to yell in our home. And to this day, I praise God. Glory to his grace, I've never yelled at my children, not once. I've been tempted many times, and I've had one niece especially that has pushed me very close to the edge. <laughs> very close to where I was beyond my natural ability, and it was time to take a break. Okay? You know, praise God for his grace, because we need it. Day in, day out. <clears throat> this is what I'm saying here, folks. Let me give you an analogy, okay? I'm going to run this point home. This is most Christians' view of grace. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I'm saved. Yeah, I looked at a little pornography there, but it's okay because it's under the blood. It sounds really spiritual. Okay? And we cover this up sometimes by saying, nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. I had a conversation like that one time in Galveston, Texas. I was 19 years old. A guy made a that claimed to be a Christian made a comment about a girl. I called him out on it, and he said, nobody's perfect. It's the first thing out of his mouth. We're only human. Listen to me, folks. We're saints in the eyes of God. We have his grace in our lives, and it isn't to cover up everything we do wrong. This isn't a, you know, this isn't atonement. Grace is atonement. Yes, it is. It applies that way, but it also applies with power. It's applied differently to the sinner and the saint. Let me uh, share a verse with you. Luke 2.40. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom and grace, and the grace of God was upon him. Why did Jesus need grace if it's just atonement? He never sinned. He was the atonement for the whole world. He was it right there, living flesh. He didn't need grace from the, the atonement form. What did he need grace for? To walk it out. To go to the cross. To hold the line. To make it in life. To not get frustrated in his flesh and say, angels, come on down here and we'll mop them up. I'm done with them. That's why he needed the grace of God in his life. It had nothing to do with atonement. Grace is not. What, let me ask you look at this. I dare you. I'll tell you this. I dare you to do a study on the word grace and find out how many times the word grace and power are used very closely related. It's, what's the primary definition of grace? Do a study on that. Find it out. Where is it first used in the book of John? It's a fascinating study. It's one much needed in the church. Because here's why. We need to stop expecting people in the church to fail. No. We've got to get over this thing of we're only human, blah, blah, blah. It's power. We just sung about it. All right. A couple more verses. And before that, can you throw that slide up for me? So this is what the grace of God is. There's two camps here, folks. There's sinners and saints. Before you're saved, you're a sinner. And you need the grace of God in your life for forgiveness and redemption. Hands down. You can't work your way to heaven. If you try, you're going to fail. You need that grace of God. And then after you've obtained it and you became a saint, you need that grace of God in your life, that divine empowerment. Divine influence on the heart that reflects back out of your life in your walk with Christ, how you talk to your children, you fill in the blank, how you talk to your coworker, how you help the people on the street. If you will fill your cup up continually, every time I said this before, every time I fail, I said this last time I preached, every time I fail God, every time I've seen that happen in my life, it's always been because I neglected something. See, God didn't create us in such of a way we're designed for failure. I reject that idea. They may teach it in the seminaries and the colleges, but it's a lie. We're not designed for failure, period. That is a lie. We're designed for victory. That's what he wants us to do. 
go and change the world. How can I help somebody up if I have two broken arms? I can't. If the church is broken and the, and the leaders in the church, all they get done is ministering to the broken church that's in shambles, how effective are we going to be in the world? I would just love to see a strong core of families come together and build a church that can just change Chillicothe, Newark, Ohio, solid, relentless, determined, focused on God, never going to take your eyes off of them, never going to stop following, continually filling the cup up. You can't serve two masters. If you continually fill your cup up with God, you literally can't, you can't screw up. You can't. I know that sounds crazy, but think about it. If you're just constantly pouring in, you're full of God. It's when you slack off and neglect. If you're like, I'm too busy to read the Bible. I'm going to just go do this today instead of that. Or, you know, you fill in the blank. The compromise is where we get off. If we continually hold the line, and don't think it's not possible, Job, Daniel, Joseph, don't think it's not possible. Well, there's only three guys out of how many? I don't care if there's none. Just hold the line and be the first one. I dare you. You want to be different in life? You want to have a family that's extraordinary? Hold the line. I don't care what the world says is going to happen or has to happen or you're built like this or you're designed to fail. It's, it's a lie. Can we go to Acts 3 or 4.33? I'm almost done. And with great power, the apostles gave their testimonies to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Great power. They gave their testimonies, and great grace was upon them all. They were literally seeing the grace of God on the apostles in action. And it wasn't atonement. It was empowerment. Acts 11, 23 and 24. When he came and saw, I think this was when Barnabas was sent to Antioch, if I remember the history. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful. They must have been being faithful if they were going to remain. The grace of God in their lives was living proof that they were remaining faithful. Faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a large company was added to the Lord. That last part's really important. A company was added to the Lord because of the grace of God in somebody's life. I see so many people that claim to love God. And they are not walking anywhere near where they know they should be. And they'll even go so far as to say, yeah, I've been to jail. Yeah, I've done this. Yeah, I've done that. But I've never left God. I've held on to him this whole time. Well, yeah, we, we could uh, get into some semantics here. And maybe you did love him in a sense, but not in any way where he was Lord over your life. Right? If we're going to wear the T-shirt, we have it. It's a disgrace to God to say, I'm a Christian, and then walk contrary to that. You're literally hurting the cause. And even you're, you're worse than neutral. You're not just neutral. It's hurting the cause. <clears throat> I'm thankful that God takes away the sin of the world. He doesn't cover it up. He takes it away. He redeems us out. You know, to be redeemed, you know what that means? Imagine you were a slave in one of the worst parts of the world right now where they're killing Christians. Imagine that, to be a slave there, and somebody show up and redeem you. And as soon as they bought you out, as soon as they laid the cash down, whatever the exchange was, they said, okay, take them back. You're good now. Redemption is to be pulled out of the mess. Can you imagine saving somebody from drowning and then just dragging them through the water? Huh? You're just supposed to pull them up in the boat, get them out of the mess they're in? Redemption is not to stay in the mess we're in. And God redeems us out. He has power over sin in the grave. And that's given to every one of you. Not come to condemn you. If you need to repent, it's that simple. Repent. Straight up. And consciously make a conscious choice that I'm going to trust in God. And I know through his spirit in me, I can make this. Whatever you need to make right, make it right. Don't wait. Do it yesterday. It's urgent. It's important to have a clear conscience. So if this has hit you hard, it wasn't for condemnation. But if you're convicted, just simply make it right. Simply get your heart clean before the Father. 
Oh, what a blessing it is to have a clear conscience. One of the greatest things in life is just lay your head down on your pillow at night and know that you're right with your creator. You're walking in his design. Ooh, that's powerful. Let's change our tactics, folks, in the church. Let's start here, in the home. Start there and let it bleed over into the church. If you're getting ready to have a family, start a family. That's great because you can start now. If you've already had one, don't beat yourself up. If you've done it wrong, so be it. Use your life as an example of how to do it right. Tell them, I did it wrong here, here, and here. Be like my mother. You have something to offer, period. Our children are not destined to live in sin, folks. There's a book that I read, and it said, the most spiritual thing you'll do today, the famous, the, the, my best quote out of it is, the most spiritual thing you're going to do today is act. Parents, the most spiritual thing you can do today is act. Take an action today that is toward the spiritual benefit of your family. Thanks for listening to the CT Podcast, a ministry of Church Triumphant, another opportunity for you to be equipped and encouraged to win, disciple, and send. For further information, go to www.churcht.org.